There's a story in the Gospels that I heard growing up and never understood. And by never understood, I don't mean that I found it weird or didn't get how it could be true or found it challenging. Don't get me wrong, the rest of the Bible is full of stories that in some form or fashion have fit into that category for me at one point or another. There's a story about a talking donkey. There's a story about a fish that ate a person. They're there, trust me. And there are sentences that Paul writes that I swear go on for three paragraphs. One sentence, three paragraphs. So they're surprising and there's confusing, but usually, Usually, and especially in the Gospels, stories are fairly straightforward. It's why we like the Gospel stories so much. A story about Jesus healing people, well, we can all get that. It might seem unbelievable or amazing, but we get it. His teachings may be hard for us to practice, like turn the other cheek, but we know what it means. No, when I say there's a story in the gospel that I didn't understand growing up, I mean I literally didn't understand it. I didn't know what the words meant. I couldn't picture it because I didn't know what it was saying. That is, until I read Harry Potter. We are going to look at the story and discuss this story this morning. And that story is the story of Jesus' transfiguration on the mount. I heard this story time and time again in Sunday school growing up in the church. I could have told you the basic plot. Jesus goes up on a mountain with his disciples. He's transfigured. Some other things happen, which we'll get to, and then they come down. If you had given me a quiz on the content of this story, I would have gotten an A. I knew the facts of the story. I didn't, though, get the meaning, because I didn't know what the word transfigured meant. That is, until I read Harry Potter. Because in Harry Potter, mild spoiler warning, one of the classes Harry takes at Hogwarts is Transfiguration, where he learns how to transform one thing into another. You turn a teacup into a toad. And in that moment, I knew what the word Transfiguration meant, which perhaps I should have been able to figure out. Transfiguration, you can break it down. Trans means change and figure means figure. And Asian is a thing we do in a word to indicate action. So transfiguration is the action of having your figure transformed. Duh. But then, once I knew what that word meant, all it did was create another host of problems. But to explain those, we have to look at the text. We are in Luke chapter 9. About eight days after Jesus said this, I'm not sure what he said, it's okay though. He took, you can look it up later. He took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his figure changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. It's kind of a dig. Sorry. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. 
When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Let's walk through some of the details of this story because it's a really, really rich story. Jesus takes three of his disciples with him up a mountain to pray. And while they are there praying, the disciples become sleepy. This isn't the only time that Jesus will bring his disciples with him to go and pray on a mountain. That'll happen again on the night that Jesus is betrayed and arrested. He will be right up against his darkest hour, and his friends won't be able to keep awake, won't be able to keep watch, won't be able to keep vigil with him. Here in this moment of glory, Jesus' friends can't keep watch, can't keep awake, can't keep vigil with him. The disciples' sleepiness is an interesting link between this story of glory and an upcoming story of suffering. But I wonder if in some ways Luke isn't preparing us for how to read the passion story, how to read the story of the arrest and crucifixion, the death of Jesus. Because this story, the transfiguration story, is a story of power and glory. Jesus has his face transfigured, his clothes shine brightly, and God speaks, this is my son, listen to him. It's a moment when Jesus is clearly connected to the power and majesty of God. No one can read this story and say that it's a sad story, well, unless you're like best friends with Peter. But other than that, no one reads this story and says this is sad. In linking this story with the passion story through the disciples' sleepiness in Luke, or is Luke, trying to tell us that when we get to the crucifixion story, that story of suffering is somehow also a story of power and glory. Just a thought. Switching gears for a minute be, uh, to another important feature of this story is its connection to the past. In this story of glory, in the moment of glory, Elijah and Moses appear with Jesus. There's a common fallacy that the God of the Old Testament is categorically different than the God of the New Testament. That Jesus makes God love us. In the Old Testament, God is all about judgment. In the New Testament, God is all about love. And it's just not true. And I'm going to keep taking moments of personal privilege to remind you that until the fallacy's gone. Not gone from just this church, but the whole church, so you're going to be hearing it for a while. Moses redeemed the people Israel and brought them into freedom, just as Jesus does for us, redeeming us from slavery to sin and death and leading us into the freedom of God's love. Elijah called the people to be faithful to God in the face of temptation to follow other gods. We too, take, uh, we too face that temptation. Our gods might not be the idols of Baal, but they are gods of security, wealth, and self-interest. Following Jesus means forsaking all the things we want to put ahead of God in our lives. Moses and Elijah being there with Jesus at this transfiguration links the story of Jesus to the larger story of the people Israel. Now this is especially important in Luke's gospel because Luke's gospel was written to primarily a Greek community. If there was any early Christian community who would have rejected the connection of Jesus to the history of Israel, it'd be the people to whom Luke writes. But he leans into this connection, saying that Jesus stands in line with Moses, with Elijah, with the history and story of the people Israel and their God. 
Now the last point I want to highlight is something we'll develop a lot more in a minute. And it's the fact that the disciples had to come down from the mountain. The disciples want to stay up there. Let's build houses here, Jesus. Let's chill up here in your glorious presence with the homies Moses and Elijah. Homies is there in the Greek, trust me. But Jesus says they can't stay there. They must go down. We'll talk about mountaintop experiences in a moment, but even before we get there, we have to say that you never go up to the mountain to stay there. You always must come down. But let's circle back to that whole transfiguration thing. Because like I said, for years I had no idea what that word meant. I couldn't picture what happened. And then I learned what the word meant. This is a story about Jesus had his figure change, but that was still confusing to me. We are great at discerning moments when people change, when they level up. In sports, we talk about players who made the leap. Well, not necessarily in DC, but other places, players make the leap. Players who dramatically improved their performance from one year to the next. In TV, we talk about a show improving, the show finding itself, the actors giving better performances. We talk about actors or actresses becoming movie stars. We do this in politics too. How often have you heard, this is the moment when so-and-so became president? So we might look at this story and think this is the moment Jesus became Christ. Or Jesus made the leap. We might say this is a moment where Jesus went from being a teacher, just a moral philosopher, to being the Son of God. Where he got really clear on who he was and what his mission was. But that's not how we have historically understood what it means for Jesus to be fully God and fully human. We might say that this is a story that reveals Jesus' divinity. This is a story that shows us Jesus' divine nature. A story where the God side of Jesus shows up. But that's not how we have historically understood what it means for Jesus to be fully God and fully human. In the 5th century, leaders in the church gathered together to fight and argue, we've been doing it for a long time as Christians, about what it meant for Christ to be fully divine and fully human. And they arrived at the following statement that is taken as the bounds for our discussions of Jesus. <clears throat> I now read to you the Chalcedonian definition of Christology. Following then the Holy Fathers, we all unanimously teach that our Lord Jesus Christ is to us one and the same Son, the, same, the self-same perfect in Godhead, the self-same perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, the self-same of a rational soul and body, Coessential with the Father according to the Godhead, the self-same coessential with us according to our manhood. Like us in all things, sin apart, before the ages begotten of the Father as to the Godhead. But in the last days, the self-same for us and for our salvation, born of Mary the Virgin Theotokos, God-bearer, as to the manhood, humanity. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union, but rather the properties of each nature being preserved and both concurring into one person and one hypostasis. Not as though he were parted or divided into two persons, but one and the selfsame Son, the and only begotten Word, uh, only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ, even as from the beginning the prophets had taught concerning him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself hath taught us, 
and as the symbol of the fathers hath handed down to us. There's a lot in there, friends. <laughs> but the key phrase about the divine and human natures, acknowledge, acknowledged in two natures unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. All four words are key, but indivisibly and inseparably mean. We don't look at passages and say, here's Jesus' divine nature, and look at others and say, here's Jesus' human nature. At once and at all times, Jesus is fully divine and fully human. At his transfiguration, Jesus is fully divine and fully human. Prior to his transfiguration, Jesus is fully divine and fully human. So we can't say here's where Jesus became divine because his divine nature is eternally, eternally present unchangeably. So I was still confused. Because if Jesus doesn't oscillate between divine and human, if it's not Jesus who is changing, what is changing in this story? A breakthrough occurred for me when I realized it was the disciples who changed. This is a story of change, but Jesus didn't change. Jesus always was fully divine and fully human. The change occurred in the disciples who realized what was going on. Oftentimes Christians will talk about having a mountaintop experience. In this congregation, you might, hear, you might talk to folks who went on an Emmaus retreat uh, uh, or as a youth went on a chrysalis retreat, and they'll talk about their mountaintop experience. Or sometimes you hear people talk about going on a mission trip or a conference or a retreat of some other form as being a mountaintop experience. And what that means is, like the disciples, they had this transformative experience being closer to the presence of God than they'd ever been before. Some of these involve an actual mountain. Most probably don't. A lot of times, people of faith will have some sort of transcendent experience of God, where God in Jesus Christ becomes real to them in a special way. I'd never known God like this before. I'd never known who God was or what God's love was. I'd never felt God's presence before. Something special happens and something changes. But here's the thing about mountaintop experiences. Like the ones the disciples experience in this story or the ones some of us have experienced throughout our lives, it's not God that changes. It's not so much that God becomes different or Jesus becomes different. It's that we realize who God and Jesus were all along. And when that happens, it is we who are changed. We realize that God has been loving us, has been reaching out to us all our lives. We finally realize who Jesus is and what that means. <clears throat> what happened on the mountain of transfiguration and what happens on our own spiritual mountains is a transformation, a transfiguration within us. God and Jesus don't change. We do. I'll also add a quick sidebar for those of you that haven't had these, one of these experiences. Jesus took three of his 12 disciples up to the mountain. That means 75% of the disciples didn't have this mountaintop experience. And they followed Jesus all the same. You don't have to have a mountaintop experience to follow Jesus. But I do think these mountaintop experiences change us and are a part of how God transforms us. I want to continue with what happens next in, the, uh, in, the, in Luke's gospel. I have words. Uh, when the disciples come off the mountain, because I think it illustrates how these experiences change and transform us. Continuing in Luke 9. 
The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met Jesus. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seized him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Forever and ever, thanks be to God. Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming down, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. So this is not the first miracle story in Luke. And miracle stories are not uncommon in Luke's gospel. Jesus does tons of miracles, does tons of healings in Luke's gospel. Peter, James, and John have seen Jesus heal and have seen Jesus perform miracles before. But I wonder if they saw this miracle in a new light. I wonder if they saw this one differently. I wonder if they took this in and reacted as if they'd never seen Jesus do this before. I wonder if they reacted as if they never really knew what Jesus doing a miracle meant. I wonder if they saw this ordinary miracle from Jesus, this nondescript casting out of a demon, as something so much bigger. I wonder if they somehow saw this act as part of God's remaking, recreating, redeeming the universe. I wonder if somehow they saw this act as part of much more than just one family. I wonder if they saw Jesus working here in this child's life and at the same time redeeming the cosmos. I wonder if their eyes were continually being opened in light of what had happened on the mountain. Because that's what happens in our lives. Discipleship is what happens after and as we are changed by knowing who God is. Discipleship happens as we see random acts in our world as having meaning beyond our comprehensions. Discipleship happens as we see God moving and working in our lives and in our larger world. When we see how we are invited to take part in God's healing of our world and God's healing of the lives of people around us. But that begins in our being transfigured. The transfiguration on the mount continued as the disciples began to see what these miracles really meant. What the implications of these miracles were. The ultimate change that was coming into the world in Jesus. The disciples' minds and understandings continued to change. Our own discipleship comes in having our minds, our understandings, our thoughts, our attitudes, our hearts changed by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. By coming to see what God is doing in Jesus. The disciples came down from the mountain, but the transfiguration continued. Our discipleship is precisely found in our continual transfiguration. We are about to enter into a season of Lent. It's a season of penitence. It's a season of preparation. But perhaps it's mostly a season of discipleship. A season of coming to see how we can continue to be transformed by the Lordship of Jesus. This Lent, what could you take on to bring about your continual transfiguration? Your continual transformation? What could you give up? to help you listen better to Jesus the Christ? And what could you learn or discover that would help you better see what God is doing in Jesus and what God is doing in our world? Let us pray.
almighty and all-loving God. You have opened our eyes. You have opened our hearts to what you are doing in this world. How you are moving. How you are healing. How you are redeeming. We see your work. And we marvel. Help us, God, to continue to be transformed by your love and grace. Help us, this Lent and throughout our lives, to put down the things that distract us from listening to you from your presence so that we might better be attuned to what you are doing in our lives. Help us, God, to pick up the things that would continue to leave, lead to our experiencing your love and grace. And help us to meditate upon, to think upon, to try to better understand what you are doing in the world through Jesus Christ. That we might continue to commit ourselves to joining you in that work. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.